Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have a really interesting guest with us, Jeff Bullis. Um, he's one of the original bloggers. He's been ranked by all the magazines from Forbes. Um, he's been ranked as a top 10 influencer of CMOs globally. Uh, in 2016, global digital marketing influencer. Uh, a great story. He's been with, uh, with the ups and downs, the trends. Really excited to have him on the podcast. Jeff, introduce yourself to the guests. Tell them where they might know you from and how you started this all. I have no idea where you found me because you're going to be from a different part of the planet. So you might have discovered me at a presentation. It might be a, an event. You might have discovered me through a Google search. So um, wherever you found me, um, I'm Jeff. And we're here just to have um, a lot of fun exploring about how to create, and not only that, but share your gift with the world. And that's how we originally started. Was Social media was very exciting to me. Uh, it uh, removed the gatekeepers. It allowed me to share uh, what I wrote and what I thought, how imperfect whatever that was, and... Here we are in 2020 in the middle of a very crazy time. And yeah, so I built a digital platform, I created content and I shared it via social media. And that's how it all started because in the past it was all about the gatekeepers, the media moguls, the journalists that were the gatekeepers to having your voice heard. And today, um, you can have your voice heard if you're willing to build distribution yourself on a digital world. So I don't know how you found me, but um, here we are with Lover and Impact Talks, and it's great to be here. And uh, maybe for the listeners, um, what do you do nowadays exactly? Because obviously you have your website, and I'm assuming you're doing a lot of consulting as well. I don't do any consulting um, because it doesn't scale well. It's trading time for money. So what I do is I, we create content. We have a lot of guest bloggers that write for us. Uh, what we also do is we have a podcast. So the blog is very much text-based. We've you know, earned a lot of Google authority over time. We have four or five million visitors a year to the blog. And uh, we also started a podcast earlier this year, which creates content both in text and video and audio. And then we actually created a YouTube channel as well. So the YouTube channel is where we, uh, when we interview our guests, we record them in video. And I'm sure, Lover, we're doing that right now um, on Impact Talks. And uh, uh, what I'm interested in is maybe starting all the way back so that uh, we can see how you progressed. But from my research, I saw that you used to be a teacher. Is that correct? Yes, so my first career was as a teacher and after five or six years of teaching people that don't want to learn, they're called teenagers, um, <laughs> I decided that um, I really, I wasn't enjoying it, that's the reality. So I decided to do a little bit of job research, so I went and tried three different jobs over a couple of weeks. and. I discovered what I was teaching because I did a bit of part-time selling that selling was quite fun and you can, if you're actually a good salesperson, you could generate a lot more income than you were as a teacher. So 
uh, five, six years into teaching, I decided I wanted to leave. And so what I did was I went and tried real estate selling, life insurance selling and working in the digital uh, digital space. And this is the whole middle of what we, uh, what was the PC revolution. Steve Jobs, uh, uh, Bill Gates were duking it out, you know, Apple and Microsoft. And it was right at the epicenter of the PC revolution. This is in the mid 80s. And so what happened was uh, I ended up saying, okay, I don't want to do peace. I don't want to do uh, real estate selling. I didn't want to do uh, insurance selling. I thought the whole technology digital space was very exciting. So we leapt into that in the mid 1980s. That's a long time ago. A lot of people that would hear this wouldn't even have been born. Uh, yes, true. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in a generation of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And it was an incredibly exciting time. Uh, it was a time that transformed the world. Uh, we had PCs essentially disrupting the whole mainframe centralised computing model. So we had PCs uh, which were not connected. There was no internet in the mid-1980s. That was commercial. There were no browsers. But what happened was these PCs that were sold to all these organisations and government uh, were connected into networks. Now, these networks existed within just organisations. In other words, they were still islands. So PCs was, PCs was just an island on its own. Uh, then we had networks within organisations. They were islands on their own. But what happened was in the mid-1990s, these PCs started to get connected to the internet. And that was where we saw the rise of the browsers like Netscape and the internet became a commercial enterprise. This is when the likes of uh, Amazon started, where it started selling books online. So what happened was the whole rise of connectivity rose because the world started to dive into the internet and that changed the game. So moving on to about 2007, 2008, 2009, what happened was that the social media era started. We had MySpace which was run over by Facebook. We had Twitter. And what happened was is that suddenly these isolated networks within organisations, this internet connection, suddenly you had ability to reach the world. And for me that was very exciting because what was happening was you were able to reach the world with your own ideas, your own content. Before that time, uh, you were very much, if you wanted to market yourself, you had to do pay for Google ads, you had to you know, do ads on uh, media, whether it be radio, TV, uh, newspapers, magazines, uh, telemarketing, all that. So what happened was that suddenly we had all the computers in the world were connected to everyone. And over time, as everyone leapt onto the internet, 
social media became the place where everyone could share their ideas. So it was the intersection of humanity and technology. And this allowed us all to scale our reach. So you had to do two things though. You had number one, you had to create content that added value to people. And number two, you needed to build distribution. So that's what the game was. It was about building distribution. And back then it was very organic. So what were, what were you doing before that 2007 to, to do your sales career or to get yourself out there? And then how did that change and what became your focus after 2007? So before 2007, the way to get your voice out to the world before the rise of social media uh, was you had to do cold calls, you had to knock on doors, You had to pay for media ads, you had to be on radio, you had to be on TV, you had to be on, uh, yeah, you had to pay the media moguls. So from 2007 on, with the rise of social media, we were, you were able to build your own distribution. It was very organic back then. And what I mean by that is that you could grow Twitter followers, you grow Facebook, you know, likes and followers. Uh, and so you were able able to reach a global audience freely without paying anyone. It was the rise of organic distribution and reach. Because you have right now quite a lot of Twitter followers. Is that how you originally built it at the time? I think you have like half a million plus or something. Yeah, so we've got about 570,000 Twitter followers. So the back in 2008, 2009, what happened was you were able to build followers. And the way you did it, the way I did it was, if you followed someone, they followed you back. I did this all manually. And this is before the rise of, you know, and 2008, 2009, social media was the wild west. It, it was where uh, there were hardly any tools. There were no uh, Agora pulses. There were no uh, platforms to actually reach your audience or scale it or automate it. So you had to do it manually and it was a lot of rest of time. But what you realize over time was I couldn't do this manually forever because all I'd be doing was tweeting. But originally I followed a lot of people. I followed almost anyone that moved on Twitter. And if there's a law of reciprocation, which is how we work in humanity, is if you follow someone If you want to be a friend of someone, they've got to go, well, do I want to be a friend of Jeff? On Twitter, if you follow someone, do you want to follow them back? We don't want to follow them back. On Facebook, it was the same deal. So I used the law of reciprocation and I manually followed a lot of people. Then I discovered tools that allowed me to do it um, with automation. But is that how you, because the numbers you have right now, that's, not how you can't do that with just following people. So I'm assuming at one point you started doing something else that started scaling everything. So the challenge we have today is that um, we had to move from manual to automation. We also in 2013, 2014, when Facebook and Twitter and the other platforms realized to monetize their platforms, they had to charge you to reach your audience. So what happened is all of these platforms used algorithms to reduce the reach of people that had already built an audience. 
Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, so what happened was is that companies that had built their distribution almost solely on having one million Facebook followers and likes but doing nothing else suddenly had their distribution cut back to almost nothing. So the game today has moved from algorithmic organic into pay to play. Over the last six to seven years, the game has slowly transitioned to where if you want to reach your audience, to reach a global audience, sure, you can have a lot of followers, but the reality is that you need, it is now pay to play. So what you've got to become really good at today, and that's what we've had to do in the last few years, my platform and my team, is we've had to decide how to reach an audience through Facebook ads, Google ads. So the, the platforms have become the new media moguls. So it's now pay to play to reach your audience. It's the same, it's just a different platform. Is there no alternative? Because obviously, I feel like what you're saying, I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but you actually saying it um, makes me realize it. Um, somehow, I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe there's this hope that if you have like a lot of traffic at one point, you know, it just starts automatically growing. But but what you're saying is even as you are growing which we've been noticing the bigger we get the somehow more expensive our reach becomes or just we can't reach everybody it's just less and less i'll give you an example we had our instagram and i remember when we had like a thousand followers we would get more engagement than now at ten thousand and it took us like 12 months to get to ten thousand and it was all organic yep. um, so how do you fix that especially I guess I'm asking considering you know startup funding event we have a lot of startups how in in the beginning if you're starting something you're a freelancer you're a startup you're you're trying to put a message out there we have a lot of charities that don't have a lot of budget so what do they do um, I'm sorry to say that the challenge is now that you can't it's very hard to earn it organically you need to pay. And so, and, yeah, yep. no continue. So, sure, you can earn Google authority, but Google will impose its own rules on you. Uh, because all the platforms have algorithms now that are imposed on you, on your website. And you only have to look at even your email. You could build an email list. But what happens is Google brought out in their Gmail, they brought out tabs that so go promotional, normal, all right? So the, we're, in, we're in the era of the battle of the algorithms. And it it's even extends, so you could build an email list of 100,000, you could reach almost all your audience. But today, uh, it's almost all about working out how to work, you know, well, to work with the algorithms. That's really what you've got to do. And uh, it's complex because every platform has its own algorithm, but they've all got algorithms. So how does this charity that has no money 
tough. Um, so, and if you have, if you have, let's say the next step, so a, a company that is scaling a hundred thousand email list or something like that, what is their, where is their money put out best? W what should they be focusing on if they have a decent following, uh, a decent email list? What, what is the next step for them to, to get to that next level? You just got to get really, really good at targeted digital advertising and you've got to test we typically if we launch a campaign we'll run 72 different ads or variations of one ad and you've got to see which one works you've got to test Facebook versus Google uh, we've tested Facebook versus Google we found that Google on some uh, campaigns is uh, has been five times more efficient than Facebook, and for other campaigns, Facebook's been five times more efficient than, than, Facebook, than Google. So the reality is you, you've got to test and you've got to check your data. And so when you're looking at uh, Google or Facebook, what type of content do you think would fit better towards Google? What type of content do you think would fit better towards Facebook? What are you exactly looking at? Do you have some examples you could share with us? Right, so if you want to promote on a Google platform, such as YouTube, uh, YouTube video ads will be much better than Facebook ads. And that was one of our tests, was Facebook ads to drive traffic to get YouTube views was five times more expensive. So you can't assume anything. Uh, the reality is that it's very complex and every platform has its own algorithms and these algorithms are incredibly complex. On top of that is now being layered um, AI, artificial intelligence. So what does that look like from one week to the next? Well, these, this artificial intelligence is learning from your activity, from their activity and What's happening is that what works one week won't work the next week. Um, we've tried to promote some you know, uh, Google YouTube channel videos recently and we've d I've just discovered that we had video ads banned because we were using the word COVID or coronavirus and there's in the algorithm of Google is a, if you mention that word, that your ad will be banned because that's, they don't want people to take advantage of the pandemic. Uh, so then you actually have, need to ring up or contact Google and get a special, dis, you know, a special uh, certificate to allow that to be put to the side. Now, it's... 12 years ago, it was simple. Today, it's just become complex. So how does an audience, how do you reach an audience? Well, what you need to do is you need to have a specialist for almost every platform. It is incredibly complex. And if you say to people, well, you're gonna, you can be good on all these platforms, you can't, it's, unless you hire a specialist. So I'm sorry, you're gonna pull out the credit card. <laughs> That's the reality. 
So where do you think the future is going? Because as you said, um, when you were kind of shaping the career and your career path, you said that, you know, in the beginning you had TV and these media moguls and then social media came and democratized a lot and now they're the media moguls. So do you think another revolution will be coming? Where do you think the future is going? Oh, well, I think there's going to be another revolution. TikTok sort of uh, disrupted the players a little bit. Instagram's trying to copy TikTok now with its own 15-second video, you know, done to music. Uh, so, you know, Snapchat, that was copied by Instagram as well. The reality is that the big media players, um, such as Facebook and Google, have got the resources to copy almost any startup. So if you're a pure technology play, Google and Facebook can copy you in a heartbeat. So the reality is, what's the future? Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but what you've got to watch is what sort of content resonates, uh, where, the, where is there not a lot of competition? And to give you an example is how do you build relationships, how to be organic. Uh, so let's use an example. Uh, blogging used to be hot in 2010, we're in 2020, right? Today there are nearly a billion blogs on the planet. It's really hard to break through on that. How many podcasts are there? One million. So where is there less competition? Podcasters have a lot less competition. The challenge for podcasters is that it's complicated. In fact, you and I spent 20 minutes making sure we got the sound right before we got on this. I had to turn the computer on and off. I had to make sure I had an external microphone working to get the audio right. Nothing wrong with that. The reality is that putting a podcast together is a lot of moving parts. A, pod, a, a blog is just text, WordPress, done. So where's the less competition? What's trending? And to put an idea, give you an idea of what's trending, Spotify just paid $100 million to Rogan, who's one of the top podcasters in the world. He's an overnight success after 12 years. Uh, to, to be exclusive with them rather than iTunes. iTunes uh, is really interesting because uh, iTunes only started creating uh, podcasts in about 2012-2013. So on the scheme of things, it's not that long ago. Has Apple invested in podcasting? No. Um, is Spotify investing in audio only, which is music and audio and podcasting? Yes. How much have, has Spotify spent in the last 12 months? investing in audio only tactics and strategy and investments they spent half a billion dollars Jeez, that's a lot. so so where do you think so what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to be aware of the beat of the street and the beat of the street one of them amongst many is podcasting and audio so blogging is much more is much harder to break through because there's one billion blogs where would you rather play? One billion blogs or one million? Right. 
do you think there's a, a next thing coming that's like a hundred thousand i'm thinking like maybe tv shows that are going on platforms like youtube or something like that because that's high production um and not many people are doing it but then at the same time i'm also thinking if you do high budget things on youtube there's also like a youtuber who does a vlog for 20 bucks and it's it gets more views than a high production show yeah so here's where i think the future is in terms of content creation it's an intersection of humanity and artificial intelligence the challenge for us as humans is it's hard to scale our time so um, i'm I'm an investor in a company called Shutterrock, which uh, uses technology and humans to create videos that scale at a fraction of the cost of high cost video production. The problem we've had in the past with video is it's incredibly expensive to create. You can put together a whole TV crew, you've got to go to a location, then you've got to edit it, then you've got to produce it, then you've got to promote it. We're talking you know, budgets for large organisations. We're talking millions of dollars for one video. The challenge is that you need to create video for what? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. How do you do that? You need to do that with technology. So that's part of the challenge we have today is that you need to work out how can I scale my content creation how can I scale my distribution and marketing? And that is a complex beast. So, so what does the startup you invested in do exactly when a video gets created? So Shutterrock, uh, a startup out of New Zealand, what they do is they take static images and using technology and the collateral of an organization and turn it into a beautiful creative video production that might be nine seconds, 15 seconds. The trouble we have today with social media is that most humans have less attention than a goldfish. A goldfish has got an attention of eight seconds. Uh, most humans are, are heading very close to that or less. So the challenge is how can I create a bunch of different content video that will be able to be put on multiple platforms We've got TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, blogs, and they're all in different formats. And then how do you convert that attention into leads and sales? It's, it's a lot of moving parts. But isn't that argument, the quantity versus quality argument, isn't it that some uh, you know, blogs or YouTube channels or Instagram channels where they invest you know, a lot of money into just one good video and they post once a month um that sometimes they get more traction than if you you know swamp people with hundreds of videos i've heard the same thing happen um with blogs people did just invest in these huge twenty thousand word articles uh, and only post once a month or something same with youtube you know youtubers like casey neistat just started their vlog again um that pretty much invented this way of new vlogging that almost everybody does now. Um, isn't it better to rather go for that type of quality then instead of, you know, AI 
mass quantity content. You've got to try and find the way to scale quantity and quality. And you are going to have to invoke the machines. That's the future. And it doesn't mean that we won't end up with really high quality human produced videos and movies. Um, uh, what's happening too in the space is that uh, podcasting is not only about humans telling stories, it's about uh, things like creating narratives. Um, for example, one of the original narratives that was put onto radio and audio was the War of the Worlds, Orson Welles. It scared the shit out of a lot of people because it sounded so real, but it was great storytelling only done via audio. This was done, I think, in the 30s or 40s. The only way to find out what works and doesn't work is to test it. And uh, who has $10 million to spend on a video production that you might work or might not work? So, uh, and then also with a podcast, what's really great, and I've only been doing it for the last six to seven months, is that we can turn a podcast such as we're doing today into about a dozen to 20 pieces of content. We can create audio, video and text. Transcripts can be done with Rev.com. Rev.com takes your audio and turns it into a 20,000 word transcript. Uh, and then you can publish it on YouTube as a video and then you can publish it on Spotify and iTunes as audio. Then what you can do is you can actually, and if you look at Joe Rogan, he does a great job of it, he actually carves up a two-hour interview into snippets, video snippets, three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, eight minutes, whole range. So what he's doing, and then what he's doing, and what we also do now, is we take that and we optimise it for YouTube search, because YouTube is the second biggest search engine on the planet. So what we're doing is doing a lot of testing and optimising for long-tail keywords. So when people, search engines have become so complex and so good and the algorithms have become so good, is that the long tail now is generating a lot. And what I mean by the long tail is that people are typing in six or seven words going, how do I find to play a guitar, you know, by, you know, Billy Joel, right, whatever. So this is six, seven words. Uh, and there's not much competition for that. So what we're experimenting with is optimising YouTube for video search terms. Uh, on top of that, we're using Google video ads to promote. We're giving attention to our speakers. So the reality is that you've just got to keep testing. I, because the media moguls of today, Facebook, Google, YouTube, I change the algorithms every week. So your battle is with the algorithms. How do you do that? A lot of testing, and also you've got to use machines to help you. Because I tell you what, are they using machines? Absolutely. So pretty much what you're saying is that as uh, social media has matured, um, it has become more and more a play of finding a non, 
uh, let the less competition that you can get and then when you're in that space you're also kind of competing with well you have to pay to get on top and then you're yep paying is not enough you also have to kind of see how the algorithm is that weak and then making sure that you can create an ad that also helps so but then based on that you know it's almost smart that if you do a high production that you have different types of videos in that production so same actors same production but different storyline just so that you can test which one fits better with the algorithm of that week yeah don't don't assume that you know what the answer is going to be because you won't you are you are battling the algorithms of the platforms and the reality is you've got to keep testing and testing and testing so then if we're looking because we also have a lot of corporates uh listening sometimes so if you're looking from spending your budgets towards videos that perform what you want to do is make sure that you have well kind of what i said before just different storylines so let's say you know a corporate has a budget that is 100k or something like that you'd want to propose let's say 50 videos or 100 videos instead of two videos well just just you could record one video but with 50 different kind of storylines or something like that and what you do is you pick out the highlights it's like a highlight reel and then you've got to create into formats that work so it uh, Facebook for example did a lot of research discovered that um, six and nine second videos perform a lot better than 15 second videos so uh, there is there is no way around this except to experiment and keep testing and use the data to inform your decision what do you mean with six to nine second videos? Because what does Facebook measure? Does it measure how many people viewed the whole video or click-through rates? They do everything. They measure how many people watch to the end. They see how many people only view halfway through. They will measure how many people click. Uh, it's, it's complicated, as they say. So how do you handle it as obviously you're going through all these phases of social media? Right now, I'm assuming you have a team then to handle it or how do you do mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I've got a virtual team around the world to help me do it. Uh, we've realized that we need more expertise in the paid digital advertising space. Uh, and then the other interesting aspect of this is that even streaming video, like the likes of Hulu, uh, Netflix, need to run ads as well. So how do you do that at scale? Well, you need to, you, you can't go and put out a production team and create a video ad for every platform. So you need to create videos that will work with the formats and plug into the uh, APIs, you know, which is the user interface, well, the technical interface that allows it to be loaded up. So it's about how can I create content and how, and that content could be video ads that scales and can be plugged in that works for every platform. It's, it's complicated. It really is, it is a complex machine now. So what's happened is that face, 
Facebook and Twitter are very simple years ago. In fact, when I started on Facebook and Twitter, there wasn't even advertising. So they had to monetize their platforms. So today, uh, you've got to work out how to play on those platforms because they've become industrialized. They've become corporatized. And that's why it's pay to play today. And uh, maybe I want to go back a little bit and also ask about PR and how that's played a role in your life. Because obviously, you know, you have the pay to play, but there's also the other way um, that I think Richard Branson made popular in his uh, book when he said uh, something along the lines, the best marketing is like free PR or something like that. But you've obviously used PR as a tool to to get, you know, ranked and, and with that authority. Um, so can you maybe share your journey as to when you started going to all these big publications, getting ranked, how that actually affected you? Did it affect you, like getting on the Forbes list or something like that? Yeah. So when I started out, uh, I put out my first blog post. And of course, it gets lost in the sea of data and information. And that was in 2009. So, and there was a lot less competition back then. So the first part of the equation is creating content that creates credibility. And that's the challenge for everyone. So uh, for first four years, I got up at 4.30 a.m. I created content. I published a blog post by 9 a.m. every morning. I made sure that it was distributed on email and social. And for four years, I did this relentlessly. But what I realized after four years was I couldn't keep doing this. This was a a model that would lead to my early demise as a human. In other words, die from overworking, right? So I had to work out a way to, so, but what happened along the way was by creating all this content, I did build credibility. We built influence. And the, so we created content, but the other part of the equation was creating distribution. And back then, it was organic distribution. So I realized very early on that if I created content and shared it on Twitter and built followers on Twitter, that those followers on Twitter click on my content, come to my blog, and, hey, presto, I've got some attention. I was my own PR machine. I, ne I have never hired a PR company in my life. Uh, in fact, a lot of PR agencies don't get what we do today even. Uh, they don't understand how important it is to build Google authority, so that's SEO. They don't know how to build you know, attention on a whole variety of platforms. A lot of PA agencies don't know how to build, or even know how to do a proper you know, Facebook or video ad or Google ad. So PR is very important. So public relations, but public relations has transformed. Today, public relations realise that it needs to create content and build distribution. But these PR agencies don't, a lot of them don't have their own PR or distribution. So how do they get the word out? Well, they work with them. They do a variety of tactics. It could be you know, tapping into influences. It could be uh, 
paying for Facebook ads, Google ads, creating content that builds authority. So, uh, or, and you know, I got approached by the, one of the PR agencies from Snapchat recently, and they wanted us to, you know, as an influencer, uh, do a, get paid for performance. And I went, well, we're gonna to have to learn what you're doing, we have to do this and we do that. And I said, but this is the way we work. Now, way we work is very much is, if you want to reach our audience, there's a price of entry. Because I could do all this work, what you're doing is actually not that great. We need to work together. So there is an investment in what we're doing. So we ask companies to invest uh, in creating content and pay fees to reach our audience because I've spent over 10 years building an audience and you want to reach my audience for free or just be paid for performance and go, well, I don't know what your stuff's like. So let's reduce the risk. So the reality is that you need to create content and you need then to get distribution. How do you do that? There are so many ways now and it's not organic as much as it used to be. And I think that's one of the challenges that I find with organisations reaching out and they're going, um, we want to, we're posting on Facebook and they're going, did you do a video ad? No, did we do this? I go, no, I said, well, sorry, Facebook algorithm is going to stop you reaching your audience. What Facebook wants you to do is pay. But how has uh, PR then changed for you, you know, before and now? So obviously now you pay, but um, reaching out to big magazines, getting ranked, which was the question, how has that changed and how does that affect you? Because obviously you getting ranked in a Forbes or whatever, um, does that actually help you? Because sometimes I see startups getting ranked all over the world in all these super cool magazines, and a year later they're bankrupt. So does it affect, does it help, does it do anything, and how has it changed? Do you still do it? All right, so uh, years ago it was very much about organic and getting on those magazines. Yes, get get that done, get some credibility. That's called social proof. How would you get that and, and why, and what did it give you outside of, well, that social proof, did it give you something? Oh, it uh, allowed me to go and speak at events all around the world. Okay, so, so it opened as... a new career path. Oh, I, it, for me, it opened up a whole new world. And I really think that the most important thing uh, for us as humans is that we're all creators. We all have a gift to share with the world. You've got to work out how you uncreate that content. It might, be, it might be music, it might be a podcast, it might be writing, it might be acting, I, it really doesn't matter. You've got to create the content that sits in your innate ability the next challenge for you then is how do I get that out to the world? Has that changed in the last 10 years? Absolutely. Uh, we've had to pivot in the last 12 months into launching the podcast because blogging is great, but it's only one, it's much more one dimensional. 
the podcast is another layer. Uh, well, it's not more than one layer. It's actually multimedia layers to reach the world. Uh, how do we promote that? Well, we're testing all sorts of ways to do that. And, and do you, you still rely... go? Do you still go out and approach like all these magazines to get uh, the word out, or do you only focus on paid platforms now? Okay, so there's a book by David Meerman Scott that was written about 15 years ago. The truth in that book is still true today. He said that if you create content, you'll attract an audience. It's called inbound marketing. It's also called content marketing. I don't, you don't chase the customer. What you do is you create content that adds value to the customer and then the customer chases you because you're adding value to the world. It's inbound marketing rather than outbound marketing. Outbound marketing is about chasing a customer. It's about advertising only. So the reality for me is that you, the, the organic side is still not dead. But what I'm saying is it doesn't work as well as it used to. So you've got to still concentrate on creating great content that ranks you on Google, and that can be on your blog, it can be in your podcast, it can be in YouTube, it can be placed organically on Facebook, it could be on LinkedIn. You've got to be multi-channel, you've got to be ubiquitous, you've got to be everywhere, and you've got to see what works and what doesn't. Then on top of that, you've got to work out, okay, so what's not working in 2020? What is working in 2020? And then you go, well, there's less competition in podcasting, for example. But then some people go, well, I'm just going to do a podcast. It's audio only. There's a problem. The reality is that's audio only. A podcast done on Zoom can be turned into three types of media. Then you can get multiple distribution. So this is where it gets really complex. You cannot sit on your haunches going, I'm just going to do a podcast. I'm going to get discovered. Game's over. I'm doing well. It's, it's a lot. And the other thing too is it's a long game. This is not a short game here. Um, you know, Joe Rogan, who started his podcast in 2007 or 2008, He's an overnight success after, what, 13 years? And it's fabulous. Um, he got paid $100 million by Spotify to be exclusive to them rather than iTunes. Uh, so the reality is you've got to play a long game. People go, well, I'm starting a blog and I'm going to be overnight success. doesn't work, sorry. What do you think of the format that Joe Rogan has where, where he has a podcast every day, which is like three hours long? Is that something that you think is smart in, in 2020 and, and going on right now? Um, or is it too much content? Is that something advisable for somebody who doesn't have a large audience? Okay, it works. Can you do that every day? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Uh, I only create a podcast once a week. Uh, will I move to every day? Maybe. Um, so uh, I think one of the big 
elements of his success, of his success is that he's also created a YouTube channel that's had two billion views. Yeah. So, and, and on top of that, he also creates video snippets that are taken out of the original content of three hours. So a three-hour video turns into, what, 20 pieces of content. Uh, so what Joe Rogan is, is doing is working. Do you have the resources to do that? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. Or are you prepared to invest in it? And are you prepared to invest in the time that it takes to play that long game? Because Joe Rogan's played a long game. Tim Ferriss has played a long game. He wrote the four-hour work week, which is his basis for attention, um, I think about 2005. Fast forward to 2020. His podcast is an overnight success, built upon his credibility and social proof from his book 15 years before. Yeah. And um, so actually what you're saying is as long as you have the resources and that's not just the money, it's more like, you know, do you have the ability to every day have a guest talk for that long or uh, be focused on it like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan are doing, then it might be a good idea, but it's still a long game. What's a long game for you? Are we talking like three years, four years? Are we talking eight years, 12 years? Because obviously you're mentioning Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan, and those are time spans of 15 years almost. Yeah, well, uh, I started to get traction after two to three years, meaningful traction. Uh, I didn't get paid for the first year or two. Uh, then I got paid to speak so it just depends and how do you do that well i had a paid job that allowed me to bootstrap right so uh i'm not it doesn't have to be 12 years but what people have to realize i've heard what's um a term called the thousand day rule be prepared to do a thousand days that's about three years. Uh, so some people will do that faster, some people would take longer. There is, it's just a rule of thumb. It's, it's not the Ten Commandments of time to actually get results. But the reality is, if you're going to do 10 blog posts and think you can be a millionaire, that's a challenge. Where, where did you hear the thousand day rule? Is that like a book or something? Uh, it's, I read it, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, so if you Google the thousand day uh, challenge or thousand day rule, uh, look, it's just a rule of thumb. Look, so don't take the thousand days as gospel. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not a religious experience. Uh, what I'm saying is, You've got to be prepared. I spent four years uh, creating content every morning, five days a week before I did my day job. So I spent the time needed to build the content and the distribution I needed to uh, get noticed. So maybe an interesting question, but how did you combine like how was your day looking like when you had your day job and you were building the blog what was your time schedule like i i know a lot of listeners 
are in that phase where they have a job, they want to start something. And I always mention, you know, you have, you know, you come back after five o'clock and you can do stuff. But how, how did you do it? Can you share a bit how your day looked like? Right. So my original day was I wrote late at night and published. And it hit, it hit the market when the Americans were waking up because the USA is one of the biggest uh, content markets in the world. That was my initial approach. It wasn't working because I would catch up with friends and socialize and that would disrupt that routine. What I realized was that if I got up at 4.30, no one's awake. And I had quiet time, it was my time. And between 4.30 and 9am is where I created and, and distributed my content. And from 9am, that's when I did my day job. And yeah, in the evening I did research, I read a bit, I maybe got ready and set up the content that I was maybe going to write the next morning. So it was a bit of a hybrid, but you've got to work out a way that works for you. A lot of people have young families. Um, the baby wakes up at 5.30. Um, Sometimes the kids go to bed at 7.30. So there's no right or wrong. You've got to work out a routine that works for yourself. Uh, and it also depends on what stage of life you're in. So my children weren't young at the time. They, I was you know, an empty nester. I had the time to do that. So some people are time rich and money poor. Some people are money poor and time rich. So it, it's up to, you've got to work out your way that works for you. Routine is your routine, not someone else's. I have a question that kept popping up um, that I was thinking of as you were explaining also the social media and your career, which I think the interesting part of your career is like you've really just seen a lot of it expand from like what you said in the 80s when it started uh, taking your interest to now um, if you know the future is going towards paying for well it's already here paying for it like your audience yeah it's why here. why uh why would you um still stick in this career path um of you know building audiences social media if you're saying that you know every week things are changing is this a viable career to eventually go and retire with um, or is it a career that you know you're doing a lot of good stuff now but in 10 years you'll be bankrupt okay so you've got to make sure that you're doing what you love Right, if you're doing something you hate and you're doing it only for the money, you are not gonna stay the course or the distance. Now you use the word that starts with R, it's called retirement. Right, retirement is a word I don't use. I do something I love. I work with a team that is fabulous. I create content that adds value to the world. You don't have to look at the Warren Buffetts of this world. They don't, they're not talking about retirement. That's 
that's an industrial term where you take the pension and fade in the distance, you know, and it's not a term I like to use. So uh, for me, I've just got to be on top of what's happening and trending. One of the things you really need to be aware of in is that one of the, as a startup or as a business, you've got to be riding the trends. One of the things I got right was riding the blogging trend in 2008, 2009. Uh, I'm, I need to make sure that I'm on top of what's happening and what's popular and what's rising that in my industry. So what I'm really pleased about is creating the podcast this year, The Jeff Buller Show, because it, for me, uh, it's synergistic and congruent with what we already do is creating content, adding value to the entrepreneurs of the world that want to grow their businesses. They all have the same challenge of how do I balance my time? What routine should I use? Because we're humans. So how do you win at business and life? And that's the mantra of what we, we do at jeffbullers.com. So I like what you said because um, what you're actually saying is as long as you love what you do, um, it won't feel like work. So you'll keep innovating. And then, you know, technically you shouldn't be retiring because it's not like you're doing industrial work or something. So you're not breaking your body. So you can just sit on your laptop and do it till the end. Well, I think the other challenge is you've got to realize how you can scale what you do. Uh, so that's why you need to work out. You need to hire a team around you that allows you to scale you. Uh, if you're going to be doing all the work, you're working in the business instead of on the business. And that's the big challenge for entrepreneurs everywhere, all around the world. How did you solve that challenge? When did you know, okay, I need to hire and who was your first hire? So my first hire was uh, guest authors. Well, how does that work? When well, you... I, didn't, I didn't pay them, but what I did is I gave them attention. So there was, there was an exchange. You give me content and I'll give you attention. And that's the game still today. And if you go to the Forbes of this world and the others, people write content for Forbes and others, New York Times, and that for free. Um, but then around that, how do I scale uh, that editing and that publishing? Well, I needed to find the right people to do that, and that's what we did. We, I, what what was fantastic was, as being open to that, um, I people came into my life, into the business that allowed me to do that. So, uh, you've got to get to a point where you're going, I can't do it all, and you've got to realise what you're good at and what you're bad at. Um, I'm not a, I can't write software, I'm not a coder, uh, I'm not that technical. Uh, so you've got to be the strategy guy, the strategy person, and you've got to build a team around you that are much smarter than you in the areas that you're not good at. And, uh, and that's different for everyone. And then... In a, in a kind of landscape now where you have to pay to get to your audience, what's the benefit of having uh, guest uh, posters, people who write blog posts for you? Well, 
they're creating content that still continues to build authority on the website. So this Can is you explain the, that because you've been mentioning it throughout the, the podcast and it was a question I wanted to ask you. What, what is Google authority? How do you build that? How do you, you know, do that? Right. It comes down to the original Google uh, algorithm, which was they would give authority by using an, a very simple algorithm initially, which was if you've got, let's say your blog is creating content, your website's creating content. If different websites start connecting to you, okay, it could be a sheep farmer in Azerbaijan, it could be a small business in Estonia, right? That's great. But if a site like New York Times, Inc.com start connecting to you, Facebook are going, oh, hang on. So there's both the quality of the links into your site and also the quantity of the links coming into your site. So the algorithm of, of Google is still that. It's about a signal measuring how much quality and quantity links are, or websites are linking to you. And that's how they... It's called, that's how they rank, create ranking authority. So then they would say, then they would put that and put you on page one of Google when they put in a search term that you wrote content about, like how to grow your Instagram followers, how to build a website, you know, phrases. So what has happened is that this has become more complex because we have a lot, the sophistication of the algorithms has got to the point where the, the search phrases get longer by about a word a year. So how do you build authority? Create great content that a lot of sites and quality sites connect to and link to. That's Google website authority. So then that's the benefit of having guest posts because if those are really good quality posts and then it gets picked up by Inc or whatever, then suddenly you get those backlinks. That's right. Now, what's happening is that Google's starting to uh, create penalties for people that are creating content that passes uh, link juice on. Now, I won't get too technical on this. I'm not, I'm not that technical unless I have the team that does this. But uh, what's happened is that uh, building authority was easy to do years ago. It's getting a little bit harder now because Google's rules of engagement have changed. And uh, that's the way they play. So you've got to play by their rules. Um, how otherwise how got... have they changed? Uh, do you have some examples? Uh, so sites like Forbes don't pass on any do follow links. Um, we've recently made sure that we don't do that because we don't do any, we do the same as Forbes. We don't. What is we, a do follow link? A do follow link allows the authority of a site to be transferred to someone else. A no follow link stops it being transferred. In other words, if someone, if you give a do follow link to someone, it makes them rank high. And if Google goes, well, someone's paid you to do that, and you're going, well, really? Uh, so the, it's really interesting in terms of 
Google is trying to create an authoritative, language to be authority site, uh, but you can't monetize it because that's riding on their sort of authority. It's it's complex. Do I understand all of it? No. <laughs> um, does it become a challenge? Yes. Um, do we give attention to a lot of sites? Yes. Uh, do we give attention to guest authors? Absolutely. Uh, but the game keeps changing. And this is the whole thing about the battle of the algorithms, which is a term I use all the time, because the algorithms keep changing. And it's even into email, it's even into search authority, it's even into uh, you know, digital video ads, digital ads. Uh, what ads can you run? Well, Facebook mobile, you can't do stuff that does mentions this term. Um, don't try and fight them because they've got much more money than you. Great. Um, we uh, have in this uh, podcast a segment called the crash and burn segments. Um, and it's a, it's a great question about your failures. Um, what is the biggest failures that you didn't expect and, and what did you learn from it that you could share with us? Okay. My biggest failure was when I got banned from Twitter in about 2011. Uh, because I broke one of the algorithms. So what to learn from that? How did you break their algorithm? What, what do you mean break? Because I, I followed too many people too quickly. And I used technology to do that. I was doing it manually. I used a very rough uh, app to help me do follow a lot of people. Because by following people, they follow me back and I build distribution. So in two, about 2011, I used this really raw app to do that. It caught Twitter's attention and they blocked me for about six hours. I was horrified because Twitter was my main distribution platform. What did I learn? I learned that the algorithms need to be respected and not to be ignored and to be worked with. So that's even truer today than it was nine years ago. So when you got unblocked, what did you do then? I'm assuming you deleted that follow app and then you just continued manually or? Yeah, I did that for a while. Then I worked out a more sophisticated app. So I got a little bit more sophisticated. So it was the wild west of social media. No one knew how the rules were. No, well, we don't know what the rules are today in a lot of cases, but uh, yeah. So I got banned from Twitter for a few hours and uh, we, we now play by the rules. Well, I, I thought I was playing by the rules. I just didn't know what they were at the time. That's all. What do you think about the fact that the rules aren't clear? Because every platform like YouTube, it's like a black box. You have no idea what is happening. They're all um, a black box. But what, what do you think about that attitude and also yeah can you just share your light on it you have such a big following you've been doing it for so long so then you have a more unique perspective on you know actually people criticizing them they never became more transparent about all these things so yeah what do you think about that 
is um, it's very simple. Uh, you've just got to do, go and test. Um, you cannot you cannot predict the algorithm changes. You can't. Um, you don't know what they are because they're not transparent and not going to be. Why not? Why do you think they're not going to be? Ah, because it's their, what they call their IP. They're in you know intellectual property. Uh, they don't want to reveal it because people will game will game the system. There's a lot of bad actors out there, as we know. People are trying to work out all the angles. And as we know, you're going to get you know email turning up into your inbox that looks innocent enough, but they're actually just trying to steal your contact details so they can actually hack your website. So intellectual property uh, is part of the game. And uh, so the only way you can work it is to test, is to keep testing. So your video, your Facebook ads, all going to be tested. And uh, it will not be clear. Uh, even their terms and conditions will not be clear. Uh, so, and just keep asking questions and be curious. You're, it's an ongoing battle. So a few rotten apples have ruined it for most, I'm assuming. Sorry, what? A few bad apples have uh, made it bad for everybody else. That's been how humanity's run for, the, for millennia. <laughs> um, we have another segment that I'm always interested in asking. It has to do with our name, Impact Talks. It's the Impact Story segment. Um, and the question around that is, uh, what is the project that you worked on that had the biggest impact? Um, the project I worked on had the biggest impact. Um, well, it's been our own content creation, I suppose, is creating the best headlines that get attention that go viral. Um, one project we ran was... Um, a piece of content we put on LinkedIn and we were the top pe performing piece of content on LinkedIn for a whole week globally um, and it was about uh, Facebook so that was a huge success we had uh, hundreds of thousands of views on LinkedIn back in 2013 and that was great uh, the most recent success we've had, uh, uh, I'm enjoying, is the launch of the podcast, The Jeff Buller Show. So that's been a great success. I, and for me, the most important thing about the podcast is where we interview incredibly interesting people, fantastic people, both people I know plus new people I have never met is it just builds this incredible relationship that uh, you shine the light on them, it's called the Oprah effect. And for us, it's about shining the light on them and building a relationship and creating the best content we can that will make a difference. And when you do that, you're changing the world in your own little way. You're putting your own little dent in the universe. And this is where it gets fun, is that as you keep doing that, week in, week out, that the world... What happens is that, yeah, so you are making a little change to the world and you're having a conversation with the world, but then the world talks back to you. This is the fabulous thing about social media, is that you are 
changing the world, but then the world changes you. And that's where it becomes really exciting. And I love opening the inbox in the morning to discover uh, people making inquiries because you've been creating content that makes a difference. You've been creating uh, stuff that adds value to people's lives. And that's where, what I love. It's, um, it's magic. I just love this two-way conversation that we didn't have. In the past, we had media where you send a message out, you never got anything back. Social media is a two-way conversation. And it's got its pros and cons, as we've discovered with um, recently. Uh, there's a lot of bad actors that play on these you know, platforms. But I, and I remember going to speak at the World Youth Forum, which is hosted a roundtable by the president of Egypt. And uh, this was two years ago. And there was the pros and cons of social media. So one side of the roundtable was the academics and professors that were sharing what they thought were the you know, the cons, the bad side of pro social media. On the other side were people that were creators, a lot of them, that were saying the pros of social media. And it was really fascinating to have this hosted by the President of Egypt where we all had to share our stories for three minutes. And for me, I was obviously on the pros side of social media because Social media has made a huge difference in my life. It, allowed, it enabled the world to hear my imperfect creation, to read my imperfect creations. And that's what excited me in 2008, 2009, was I could share with the world for free uh, my creation. And that could be a YouTuber, it could be a podcaster, it can be a writer, it doesn't really matter. And that's what's that's what is exciting still today, but there's a lot more noise. What was the conclusion of that uh, conference? It sounds super interesting. There was no conclusion. It was a conversation. And uh, the, what it was good for me was to understand that uh, I was... I suppose had drunk the Kool-Aid of social media, which is all about the positive effects of it. Um, and what we've seen unfold over the last uh, couple of years especially is that social media is used for bullying, it's used to, for the bad actors to get their voice out, it's been used for disrupt elections, it's been used to disrupt government, it's used to create chaos. Um, and I, I suppose in the past I've ignored that. Uh, but I'm still positive about the reality of it. I think that we, we're in the middle of trying to work out technology that is very, very new. We're only a decade or so into the technology, two obsessive technologies. Uh, those two obsessive technologies are social media and our smartphone. How do we as humans adapt to that? We're in the middle of one of the biggest social experiments in humanity. And you only have to walk down the street and see people with their you know, phone face buried in a phone. You only have to watch you know, the younger generation that can't have a proper conversation because all they've got is a, uh, a phone in front of them. And you quite often will go to a bar and you go see four people. They're not having a conversation with each other. 
They're having four individual conversations with a smartphone in front of them. I think we're still learning how to deal with uh, the smartphone and social media so that we control it and it doesn't control us. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. How do we as humans adapt to this whole digital world and very, two very obsessive technologies of social media and the smartphone? Have you seen that new documentary on Netflix, um, The Social Dilemma or something? I don't remember what it was called. I haven't read that. I've, I've seen uh, Black... Um, Black Mirror. Black Mirror. Yeah. And it actually... What's interesting about Black Mirror is it's, it's so close to the truth, it's scary. It's also uh, what it predicts is even not as bad as what it is. I haven't seen the episode you're referring to. What what was the episode about? I can't. There's a whole bunch of different episodes on Black Mirror. So, but uh, I I think what Black Mirror you, you can't reality's trumped Black Mirror. And I just used a word that I don't really often use. Yeah. <laughs> um, super interesting. Um, obviously we can talk for hours, but we're uh, about to wrap up. We're getting to the last questions. Um, my one of the uh, things that we always ask is uh, is what are you currently doing or learning that is not related to business that gives you energy. Because so, obviously we've been speaking about social media this whole time, but not business related. So I think what's important is you need to design your life, not let life take control of you. And we have the tools and the technology to do that. So you need to make sure that you don't just end up walking into a high rise building, go into a cubicle, and have the industrial corporate world just run your life. Uh, I think we are all innately creative. So uh, the mantra I use all the time is how to win at business and life. I am very, very strong on creating a routine that works for you as a human. Um, we we're all innately incredibly creative. We all have a gift to share with the world. Uh, your challenge in life is to work out what that is. And so what we've got to work out as humans is how to make sure that we do what we love doing and make sure that it, work doesn't control us, but we control work. And work, and work is life and life is work. It is life. And I think that's what's really important for us to understand as humans and we need to be able to stop and give ourselves permission to keep learning and to continue to learn, continue to create, and then you share your gift with the world. That's what's really important. And make your own little dent in the universe. And so back to your question, what are you doing currently not business and not uh, like writing blogs? Do you do sports or something? Okay, so um, I'm a road cyclist. I ride three or four times a week. I ride, have a cycling buddy that we ride every Sunday morning. We share stories, we share the week. Um, 
we as humans were not just uh, wired for uh, work. We are humans that uh, need to design our lives. So uh, I love reading. I would read a book a week. Uh, we all, most of us now work in the knowledge industry. So I am constantly reading. I, the other thing that I'm very passionate about is the power of communication and self-awareness. And it's an ongoing challenge. I also meditate every day. Uh, so I have a routine that serves me as a human. Um, I want to make sure that I am fully, as fully human as I possibly can um, and I'm as aware as I possibly can and I need to give myself quiet time. I need to feed the inspiration with great content such as reading. I've always been a passionate reader since I was a five-year-old and discovered um, books and uh, my dad used to call me the absent-minded professor, the dreamer. Uh, so uh, we're still the dreamer uh, and I will never give up on dreaming. And if we as humans stop dreaming, then I think we stop being human. What kind of books can you recommend, maybe also specific to our audience that you read that you think really helps? One of the best books in 10 years I've read recently is The Untethered Soul. What's that about? It's about being aware. It's about uh, living a life of infinite possibility. The second book I would recommend is a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. Oh, yeah, I read that one. Really good. Yep. Um, there's a couple. Nice. I... Um... I really loved it. I loved your recommendations. I think it was really interesting to hear kind of how you came through the entire trends bubble and your perspective on it. Um, and also the realization of in which era we're at um, because it, a lot of social medias are still acting as if you can grow organically, but well, you know, you are feeling the trend and I definitely was feeling the trend that unless you pay, you're not really gonna break through the bubble. So, so that's good to know. Um, so I'm really thankful that you are on the podcast. Uh, I'd like to kind of roll out the red carpet for you. Is there anything you'd like to share for our audience? Uh, yeah, let us know. Great. I think we've had a great conversation and uh, nothing to add at this stage, but um, thank you for the opportunity to share my imperfect creation with the world and uh, look forward to meeting in real life. Yeah, after everything's finished, I'd, uh, I'd love it. Thank you so much for uh, joining us at, uh, at Impact Talks. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.